Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the East West Psychology Podcast, the forum for the exploration of psyche and spirit. Join our hosts, Jonathan Kay and Stefan Jurich, and their guests as they delve into the intersection of psychology, philosophy, world wisdom traditions, the arts, and more. This episode is dedicated to introducing the South Asian Studies Association, known as SASA, and their annual academic conference, being co-hosted by the Asian Contemplative and Transcultural Studies Concentration, known as ACTS, which is being held at the California Institute of Integral Studies on March 1st to 3rd. We are joined by Chris Chappell, the president of SASA, and Devashish Banerjee, board member of SASA, as well as the chair of ACTS, who will describe this year's hybrid in-person and online conference, which is called Order and Disorder in South Asia. We also discuss Chris's new book, Living Landscapes, Meditations on the Elements in Hindu, Buddhist, and Jain Yogas, as well as scholar-practitioner approaches to South Asian studies. another edition of the East West Psychology Podcast. Uh, I'm excited to be joined by um, Christopher Chappell and Debashish Banerjee, the chair of the East West Psychology Program and the Concentration Acts. Um, And we're here to discuss a conference that's coming up. Um, But before we discuss that, I'm going to just um, introduce Chris. Um, And he's the professor of Indic and Comparative Theology and the founding director of the Master of Arts in Yoga Studies at Loyola uh, Marymount University in Los Angeles, a specialist in the religions of India. He has published more than 20 books, including the recent Living Landscapes, Meditations on the Elements in Hindu, Buddhist, and Jain Yogas. He serves as advisor to multiple organizations, including the Forum on Religion and Ecology, the Ahimsa Center, the Dharma Academy of North America, the Jain Studies Center, and the South Asian Studies Association, as well as the International School for Jain Studies. And it's great to have you here with us, Chris. Glad to be here. Also joining us is uh, uh, Devashish Banerjee, who is the Haridas Choudhury Professor of Indian Philosophies and Cultures and the Doshi Professor of Asian Art at the California Institute of Integral Studies, and he's the chair of the East-West Psychology Department. And um, we, we've you've been with us many times, Debashish, and so maybe I'll leave it at that as our, our listeners will hopefully uh, be uh, familiar with, with you already. Um, and I'll turn over to Stefan. Hi, Jonathan. Thank you. It's been a while for us also. We haven't done a podcast in a while, so it's nice to be back. And uh, welcome, Chris, and welcome, Debashish. So um, I'm going to introduce the, a conference that we're going to be giving. So please join us for the Order and Disorder in South Asia conference, where leading experts and scholars will explore the delicate balance between stability and chaos in one of the world's most diverse and dynamic regions. 
delve into the historical, political, and sociocultural complexities that have shaped South Asia, examining the forces that foster order and those that disrupt it, gain a deeper understanding of the challenges and opportunities facing this vibrant part of the world. This conference promises to be a thought-provoking journey through the fascinating tapestry called South Asia. So anyway, please consider uh, joining us for the conference, uh, which uh, the annual South Asian Studies Association Conference, which will convene the 1st through the 3rd of March, 2024. It's accessible virtually via Zoom and in person at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco, California. So for those who can attend in person, be exciting to have you there. Uh, anyway, I think that maybe we'll we'll just start right off the bat with uh, the the association itself, and then then go into a discussion of the conference. But uh, Chris and Devashish, if you could kind of tell us what what is the association about? What does it do? Uh, maybe a little bit about its history. I think uh, Chris will be the perfect person to talk about that. And just to uh, give just a little background, Chris and I are both. Uh, on the board of the South Asian Studies Association, and Chris is the president of the South Asian Studies Association um, at, at present. And so I think uh, I'll turn it over to him to speak. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give a little bit of the history. And the history is that for many, many, many decades, the Association for Asian Studies which has long been affiliated with the University of Michigan, has sponsored and hosted both a remarkable conference and a journal. However, most of what would happen in those contexts would be about East Asia, about China, Japan, and Korea. So a group of scholars uh, in Southern California, but not limited to Southern California, who had been meeting for a number of years uh, since really the 1970s, got together and said, well, let's think about something that will be of service for people of all disciplines who have an interest in South Asia and who are doing research on philosophy, on political science, on the arts and so forth. So this group of folk uh, in around 2006 decided that this was the time to start something new. So back shortly thereafter, it was 2007, the first gathering convened here at Loyola Marymount University. And we honored an individual called uh, the great art historian, Dr. Pratap Paul, who pioneered first by coming from, um, from SOAS to the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, where he took over the curating of the Kumaraswamy collection. And then in the 1960s was hired to really focalize uh, the South Asian collection at Los Angeles County Museum of Art, which is renowned an absolutely incredibly gathered and interpreted collection, not only of art for art's sake, but also a wonderful gateway introduction to the cultures of South Asia. 
and we honored him for that. We heard many, many papers, uh, some from senior scholars and some from uh, graduate school students who were just beginning their careers. Now many of them are renowned and tenured with many published works. And from that beginning, the conference traveled. It went various times to the Claremont Colleges in California, but it also has gone to the East Coast, has gone overseas. And uh, during the pandemic, we started Zooming from back here at Loyola Marymount. And for this conference, we're convening both on Zoom and in person at the California Institute for Integral Studies in San Francisco. So Devashish, what do you want to say about SASA as we refer to the South Asian Studies Association? Well, I've been, uh, you know, a participant in SASA conferences for some time, and I became a board member a uh, year and a half back um, and have been uh, following its activities. Uh, it's an exciting uh, society, uh, mainly for the conference and the, and, and the journal that it produces now called Monsoon. Um, and uh, so, um, you know, South Asian Studies Association in itself, even the term South Asian Studies Association, it it evokes a lot, you know, because it evokes nationalism, it evokes the fragmentation of this subcontinent and the histories that it carries with it. And um, as Krish mentioned, those are the main areas he already mentioned, you know, culture studies and politics and history, um, you know, th these are the kind of areas that are fraught with so many questions and problems uh, that, that, that it makes for really exciting talks and papers that are presented at every conference. So, uh, you know, I've been watching and actually looking forward to their conferences. I've been to several of them, presented in several of them, one of them with Pratapaditya Pal, who was the first honoree, as you mentioned. And so uh, I'm greatly looking forward to this conference as well. Well, maybe uh, maybe we could kind of use that as a springboard to dive into this particular conference and what's the, the, the topic and uh, what are the things that you'd like to see covered in it? And maybe maybe even a rationale for doing this particular conference at this time? Yeah, well, we landed on a topic, uh, order and disorder. And this actually has a Sanskrit Vedic ground point of origin. And those of us who have um, studied the traditional literature, but also those of us who travel within South Asia writ large, and I want to be clear that we're South Asia, we're talking about India, we're talking about Bhutan, we're talking about Nepal, Bangladesh, the Maldives, Pakistan. Uh, that, you know, when we look at what's available from the early strata, we see from the Vedas there's a concern for this relationship between asat, disorder, chaos, and sat order, 
structure and things reliable. And with Indian history, there's been a ongoing conversation between who's the ruler, who is the ruled, who has authority, who is subject, who is subjected to the authority. And there's also this notion that without the chaos, without the presence of the potential and the acknowledgement of the potential that things have not yet congealed, that a little bit of the, the um, excitement, a little bit of the creativity can be lost. So when we chose this title, we were thinking of how art gets constructed, we were thinking about how governments and empires rise and fall. We were thinking about the possibilities remaining endless, as well as times of organization being cherished by many and dreaded by some. So I don't know, what would you like to talk to the topic at all, David Sheesh? Yeah, sure. I think uh, you've presented such a nice philosophical background to the to the title, uh, Chris. Um, uh, uh, what I'd like to draw attention to is also its uh, contemporary resonances, because the whole issue of order and disorder is so key to our times, uh, which is one of the concerns which we were trying to foreground. Uh, particularly, you know, in general, modernity is a period of uh, constantly negotiating a plurality, uh, newness, uh, unex the unexpected, um, and and various forms of uh, breakdown of crisis in in whatever we call order. But right now, I think we are in a really, uh, you know, crisis moment where disorder stands us in the face from that point of view. Uh, you know, ecological collapse, uh, you know, difficulties uh, across the world in terms of politics. And, um, you know, even when we say order and disorder, there's a question as to whether order is good, because sometimes in our world today, order often means uh, fascism, somebody trying to impose an order on you. Perhaps disorder is better than that kind of order. So these types of contemporary problems, uh, which are uh, really uh, the tide in which we are swept today, uh, also feature importantly in our consideration of this title. Yeah, and to further give a, a sense of the range and the interdisciplinarity of the conference, I'll, I'll describe some of the sessions that will um, happen. And um, these are not in any particular uh, systematic order, but represent the arts, they represent literature, they represent philosophy, they represent political science, they represent bodily studies, they represent um, nationalism and caste studies. So um, 
we have a number of artists, of course, in the United States who are from South Asia. And one of the sessions will focus on preserving, breaking, and claiming the female narrative, highlighting female Bay Area artists of South Asian origin that come from both the visual arts and the dance traditions and singing as well as literature. So this remarkable. We have uh, a session on Hindu nationalism and reservation politics in the Himalayas. Remarkable researchers will be both with us. Well, actually that will be a Zoom session. So wherever you're listening to this, you can either show up in San Francisco and we will be Zooming people live or you can stay where you are and tune in on your computer. Uh, we have a panel on mind and body that will examine symmetry from traditional Buddhist Jain narratives in conversation with um, also Indian Christian narratives on bodily perfection. We will have a wonderful panel about Abhindranath Tagore, and that will focus on the post-human imagination. Uh, there will be contemporary um, conversations about partition and what happened after partition, what happened after September 11th, as reflected particularly in South Asian fiction. Um, image and text, we will have um, a panel about aesthetics and about both the theory of, of aesthetics as well as uh, presentations about uh, very specific art found in the Bhagavata Purana and uh, in the Mahisha Asura Bardini and elsewhere. Um, a panel on Dalits and disrupting caste. More conversations about women. Um, we're going to have an illustrated session on the Yoga Sutra that will put philosophers in conversation with artists about how the Yoga Sutra continues to intrigue people and to um, cause, you know, extended reflections about the human person and about meditative states. Um, literature, uh, empathy in literature, local histories um, about grudge, uh, local histories about the, um, the French colonization of certain places within India, and then interrogating um, artistry in a very local place um, during the Mughal Empire. Gandhi and interfaith, uh, a fascinating paper about the communication between Booker T. Washington uh, and um, and Mahatma Gandhi, which I think is really quite um, timely 
in this age of reflecting on education. We'll also have uh, Jane Studies and Ecology um, paper. Um, again, sustainability, so important. And a session as well on uh, South Asian approaches to sleep, which is uh, quite a fascinating topic and uh, something of interest to all human beings. So do you want to reflect a little bit more on what we've managed to receive from these remarkable scholars and the range from all over the world, Devashish? Uh, yeah, some of these, I mean, th there's such a variety of, uh, of panels and, and speakers. Uh, the very first one you mentioned, which is uh, the one about, uh, you know, breaking down and reclaiming narratives in the arts um, from the Bay Area. And that actually was submitted by a person from CIIS. So I was surprised to see that, pleasantly surprised to see that there's a, uh, a sort of a Indian scholar student who has presented that, uh, along with a, a group of other artists, uh, some of whom have, have actually come and presented. Jonathan knows about one of them. And... Uh, so, you know, there's, there's graduate students who are presenting, some of them of a very high caliber, but also you have some uh, of the people that Chris was talking to are seasoned scholars, um, you know, in, in several of the panels. Uh, the one that you mentioned, Chris, uh, which is speaking about partition narratives and the narratives of 9-11, et cetera, that entire panel is coming from Pakistan. So, um, and it's a group of people, uh, the, the person who submitted it is somebody I know. She's a post-humanist scholar and she's uh, part of the global post-human network on which I sit as well. So, uh, you know, there's Jain narratives. I mean, we feature a number of religions. This time, I think uh, there's a whole panel on Jainism, uh, which which is really promising to see that kind of featuring. And as you mentioned, Chris, there are people talking about Indian Christianity. I saw that uh, abstract from the person who's writing about Indian Christianity, um, you know, in an arts context. And, uh, you know, the person right off the bat is claiming an antiquity of more than 2,000 years to Indian Christianity, uh, which is, you know, really fantastic. So, yeah, as we know, I mean, you know, the sort of travels of St. Thomas and, you know, even Indian Islam goes back to the time of the prophet. It's almost as old as the prophet himself, uh, where Islam came to um, Kerala, and even Tamil Nadu claims an, a very old antiquity to Islam. So these religions that are minority religions in India today um, ha have persevered from almost the beginnings of their founding and some of them are featured over here, um, as well as, of course, the, the, the big elephant in the room, politically speaking, which is the attempt to hegemonize 
um, India as a Hindu nation um, and to some extent erase uh, the alternative religious histories of India. So all this makes for a very complex and and exciting, uh, you know, set of uh, problems and ideas that, that we'll be seeing at this conference. Yeah, one of the features that I'm very, very much looking forward to are the midday features. And because we're Zoom live, we're going to be doing a morning session and an early evening session. The morning session will be a late night session in India, and the early evening session will be a morning session in India the next day. So that leaves us with a few hours in the middle of the day when everyone in South Asia is sleeping. So on the Friday, we're getting a very focused, specialized docented tour of the Asian Art Museum. And those in attendance physically will just walk over from CIS to that remarkable museum. And I'm hoping that Devashish will give us a preview on this podcast of what might be on display there. And then similarly, after our morning session in San Francisco, we're going to not walk, but we're going to be transported to Marin County, where the special feature will be uh, an opportunity to tour and to learn more about the Ali Akbar Khan School of Music. And this brings me to the topic of the honorees. And every Sasa, since the very beginning. I mentioned Dr. Paul from LA County Museum of Art. A couple of years ago, we honored the filmmaker Deepa Mehta, who did that wonderful series, Fire, Earth, Water. We honored the great historian Romila Tapar, and we've also honored so many people, but Alf Hiddelbeidel, the great scholar of the Mahabharata. What Devashish will share is the um, the arts honoree, and I'll just say a little bit about the um, academic honoree Deepak Nair. And Deepak Nair is emeritus professor of economics at Jawaharlal Nehru University, JNU, in New Delhi, and he has been with the U.S. Library of Congress. He's been a distinguished professor of economics at the New School in New York City. And he taught at the University of Oxford, the University of Sussex, and the Indian Institute of Management. He was vice chancellor of the University of Delhi for five years, 2000 to 2005. And his distinguished career has been interspersed with government service as well. He has served as the economic advisor in the Ministry of Commerce, as the chief economic advisor of the government of India, and as secretary of the Ministry of Finance. Uh, his degrees are multiple, his publications are multiple, his awards are multiple, and we look so much to hearing his views on international economics, macroeconomics, development economics, 
as well as his ideas on trade, trade policies, and industrialization. So that will be uh, a wonderful Zoom session live from India, uh, which will take place on, um, on Friday night. And uh, Devishish, can you talk a bit about the honoring of the work of the Ali Akbar School? Yes, yes, indeed. So as Chris was saying, I think uh, we are going to have our honorees on Friday evening, particularly because of um, the connection with India and Saturday morning over there, which will make it easier for our um, academic honorary to uh, present to us. Uh, but we have a second honorary, and that is uh, the arts honorary. And particularly because we are in San Francisco, we are the California Institute of Integral Studies founded by an Indian. It's very appropriate. It's perhaps the only accredited university uh, founded by an Indian, um, unless we say that uh, the Maharishi University, uh, it used to be called uh, what? The Maharishi. Um, it's it's now again called Maharishi International University. International, MIU. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If, if we say that it was founded by the Maharishi uh, Mahesh Yogi. Uh, yeah, other than that, we are really, uh, Haridas Choudhury was the founder of the California Institute of Integral Studies in 1950. Um, and in those early years, when Indian culture was coming in, the years of the San Francisco Renaissance, uh, one of the waves that came into America was the wave of Indian classical music uh, that Jonathan is so familiar with. And he's actually a product of and the, the, the continuing wave of that uh, that. Uh, you know, revolution, uh, I, I would call it. And the person that we're honoring uh, belongs to an early phase of that wave because uh, very quickly there was a school established in San Francisco by uh, the great Sarot master Ali Akbar Khan. And um, in establishing his institute, he brought uh, the great tabla player Swapan Choudhury, who has been here from that time and uh, is arguably one of the greatest tabla players in the world today uh, at the age of 80. Uh, he, I think, just turned 80 recently. And uh, you all you, you, you will see how vibrant he is even today. Um, and, you know, both as a person, um, as well as as a, as a musician, as a uh, skilled um, artist, creative artist. And so um, to honor that long history and what he represents, uh, we are going to be uh, giving him the award uh, the South Asian Studies Association Award for the Arts. I, I would li also like to say that, that the conference is still being shaped right now. Uh, but one of the things is that uh, Chris talked about the Friday 
visit to the Asian Art Museum, but uh, the honorary leads us right away to the Saturday afternoon uh, visit, which is going to be to the Ali Akbar School, another South Asian landmark of, uh, Southern, of, of Northern California. So uh, we'll be visiting the, 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 the school, Ali Akbar College of Music at San Rafael, and um, possibly having a, a listening to a concert right there. Uh, if that doesn't work out, we'll listen to that same concert at CIIS, but it's, it's very possible that we'll be hearing a concert at their hallowed premises, and it will be played by the son, uh, younger son of Ali Akbar Khan, whose name is Manik Khan, and the son of Swapan Choudhury, whose name is Nilan Choudhury. So we'll have a concert there. Um, if time permits, uh, Jonathan will join in that concert. But as some of you know that we, we had a wonderful uh, conference um, in September last year. And part of the uh, highlight of that conference were the contemplative interludes that were um, given by Jonathan uh, on the Esraj. And I'm hoping we'll be able to do something similar uh, during this conference as well. That'd be great. I'd be honored to, to do that. And it is, it is beautiful, um, uh, that experience of interweaving conversation, presentation, thinking, and the, and the arts, which in, at CIS will, will also be uh, exposed to certain art. Is there's going to be a presentation of art as well at CIS? Yes, the idea is that, uh, you know, one of the, one of the presenters uh, of the, uh, at the Yoga Sutra uh, panel, uh, is also an artist who has actually uh, done a whole set of paintings on the Yoga Sutra. So I'll be in conversation with the art, arts director at CIIS so that we can feature her work during the conference and particularly in the room while she speaks and describes her, her, her work. Um, I also wanted to mention, you know, because Chris uh, was talking about um, the Asian Art Museum and what we can expect there. So I, I think they used to they they were having a conf, uh, a, a, a display called um, Beyond Bollywood, uh, which was a display of art related to Indian dance. Um, I believe that has come down now, but uh, at the same time, one of the panelists, the first panel that we talked about which is the one uh, from the Bay Area about the arts and reclaiming the voice, uh, you know, in our times of the arts, uh, who has uh, come to see as Rupi Tut, right? She is being displayed right now at the Asian Art Museum. Wow. Yes, yes. So we get to see some of her work as well. Um, yeah, in a in a new gallery over there, uh, which which is featuring a a, a a display called "Into View: New Voices, New Stories." So that's um, part of, and then they have a wonderful South Asian gallery 
which of course we will be able to uh, walk through and get a do docent led tour through. They recently had, I mean, at, we are coming in just after some spectacular um, exhibitions that have come down. But uh, late last year in December, uh, they actually brought in uh, some paintings from Japan, uh, you know, which are Zen paintings, um, a, a very famous Zen painting called Six Persimmons. Oh, yes, yes. yes, yes. They, uh, for the first time outside of the Daitokuji Monastery in Japan, yeah. made its way to the Asian Art Museum and was here for, I think, a short period and then has gone back. But uh, maybe we'll experience the uh, aftermath of its presence. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe the, the taste will remain. <laughs> yes. This, rasa, rasa, rasa. The, the, yeah, the, the subtle taste of the six persimmons will be with us. Yeah. And I think uh, maybe, Jonathan, if I could just jump in again and just say for the people who are listening to the podcast, uh, if, if you don't know about uh, the work that Debashish has done for our program, for East-West Psychology and for CIS generally, uh, our program has expanded uh, under the auspice of, of Debashish uh, in, in the direction of the arts, incorporating more of the arts in the curriculum, which is really wonderful. Debashish has also curated many shows during his, uh, during his life, is very much in, involved in the arts generally in his life, and is also an accomplished poet uh, and, and uh, sometimes uh, recites poetry with Jonathan playing, uh, which is really a treat. Uh, when people can hear it, so it's uh, this. Uh, this is really exciting for me. That I mean, it, if you're trying to do a full kind of a, an integral view of the, your particular topic uh, in South Asia, uh, it's really important also to include aesthetics and. Oh, we'll be arts. having several panels on the arts, and actually, uh, Chris mentioned the panel on Abhinandranath Tagore, who I've worked on. Um, and I will be presenting there. Um, and it'll be an interesting panel because it's actually looking at Abhinandranath through a new lens, the lens of post-humanism, um, where it's revisiting some of this work to show how prescient and future-oriented his vision of uh, man's, the human's, uh, relationship with animals, um, with you know multiple possible definitions of what it means to be human, uh, with the inanimate objects of nature um, that we are actually inextricably bound with as humans. Uh, they are, the, all this is going to be talked about. And I just want to say for those who are listening who might not know, uh, you know, lineages and uh, might not have heard the name clearly, we're talking about Abhinendranath Tagore, not Rabindranath Tagore. And nephew. this is Tagore's son? Nephew. Am I, is that correct? Nephew. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I mean, maybe I could jump in just with a, a question here of this, of, you know, South Asian um, the academic discourse and the types of methodologies that go into this kind of research. Um, 
because obviously we are in a post-colonial time and you've brought up the term post-humanism as well as a, a, a very a critical look, but a very a special look at the types of assumptions that went into framing globalization and the, the subjects of non-European um, places. And I guess um, in a more general sense, also just the question of cross-cultural translation, which is something that I've I came to, uh, it came to be important to me because I was living very much through this problem, like so many people, uh, like a lot of, uh, in the reverse sense, um, a lot of uh, people that come from places in South Asia that, that are brought up or are that move to North America, for instance, when they're very young. I, for instance, went the opposite direction um, when I was in my mid-20s to live in India for 10 years. And the question of cross cultural translation what became central to me um i found that it personally it was through the arts and actually like maybe i could just tell a short story about one experience that was very transformative which was before i was able to go to india um to to experience indian music which was very compelling to me but i was listening to it through a recording and i said to myself i really need to go to india to experience what it's like there from the feet of these maestros and it just so happened that uh, university of toronto brought swapan chaudhry and i went to a tabla recital of his and i had no idea about the tabla tradition or the instrument or what i was about to hear and i had no means to translate this into my own language although i'm a musician a jazz musician and rhythm is a part of music i learned but it was beyond translatability, translatability, but it left such a deep impression in me. It really changed something about how I was able to perceive uh, what we call music, and it drew me so much into into the to understanding, really aspiring to what is the power of this music, and and how did it do that to me? What are the practices? What are the structures? And Anyway, I'm just I just thought I'd share that because it relates to our uh, Swapanji uh, specifically in my life. I, I wanted to also say that it relates to Swapanji, but it also relates to you, Jonathan, because, uh, you know, just to let the audience know that Jonathan is also presenting uh, a paper in the conference uh, in a panel uh, on music, on Indian music. And... Uh, you know, Chris spoke about some of the philosophical uh, panels, uh, particularly he mentioned a panel on body and mind. Uh, these are these are areas that are central to, you know, Jonathan was talking about all these important post-disciplines, you know, post-colonialism, post-modernism, post-humanism. And post-humanism, a lot of Indian studies or South Asian studies is has been all these things post-colonial, of course. I mean, the, the name South Asia is itself a post-colonial problematic term. Uh, then you have uh, the post-modern because of the post-colonial, in a sense. And then even things like mind and body, you know, what is the relationship of mind and body? It takes us right away into the post-human. It's another way of understanding the human. And uh, Jonathan, what he just spoke about, about translatability and about our experience of the human, which goes beyond words, but which 
maybe can also be other ways of defining the human, uh, you know, comes really into the whole idea of what he is doing and um, post-humanism in music, which is about the embodiment of uh, structures of coherence uh, that the tradition looks at, looks at as gods and goddesses. So it's how do you become a god? How do you become a goddess? Which sounds so either impossibly archaic in modern times or so exotic, but is so literal and so part of the actual lived reality of South Asia. So th these are the these are some of the uh, you know I mean conversations that. Uh, uh, are important to a conference like this. I, um, I mentioned when we met Chris earlier in the week that I've been reading a book. He had recommended that uh, maybe for this conversation that we look at. Uh, is it your most recent publication? Yes. Uh, Living Landscapes. And uh, Devashish, what you were what you were saying just now really struck me as I'm reading that book. I'm. I, I don't know if this is your intention behind writing it. I know that there's a kind of an ecological element to it. And also the word element, it's really focused on the elements in uh, Indian spirituality and Indian yoga, Indian yoga practice. Um, but I'm I'm aware as I'm reading it, and I'm, my area of research right now is in the kind of the Western magical traditions and in Western natural magic, uh, um, there's a, a focus on the elements as well and the the way in which the human consciousness and the consciousness of the earth are really one thing and developing techniques for tapping into it so much more richly uh, expressed and further developed in uh, indian culture but I, um, I don't know whether you want to talk about this or not but i was really struck by this entering into the consciousness of the deity through these ancient texts um, but in a in a contemporary um, with a contemporary mindset, uh, looking at the the issues that are uh, affecting our planet and especially India uh, today. Yeah, the the name of the book that Stefan is talking about is Living Landscapes: Meditations on the Five Elements or on the Elements in Hindu, Buddhist, and Jain Yogas. And my own personal narrative, a little bit like Jonathan, when I discovered things India. And when I was 13, I first heard Ravi Shankar play uh, with the master tabla player uh, at Eastman School of Music in Rochester, New York. And my life was forever charted in the direction that has inspired me all of these years. And when I uh, took up the practice of a very traditional yoga, sadhana, part of what we did, building on weekly reflection and conversation about ahimsa and satya and aparigraha and shaucha, the yamas and niyamas, the, the foundational floor of yoga. And as we were moving with and continue to move with asana and pranayama, uh, the meditation portal was actually through sustained reflection on earth, on water, and all of this I had taken up 
as a teenager and later as a scholar discovered this rich literary tradition that connects with this as well as the antiquity of this practice and with the buddha's instructions to his son rahula what does he do he tells him be a sustainer like the earth flow rahula just let it go like water be fervent like fire be light like air and create as we were talking about earlier with that idea of rasa just create this flavor within the world that will be welcoming, that will be kind. And the tie-ins are almost too obvious that what do we need in our current state of ecological ravage? We need to be attentive to the earth. We need to be attentive to pollution. We need to think twice about even the waters that we ingest, not only microbial problems, but the chemical problems that suffuse water so many places in the world now. We need to be thoughtful and proper about our extraction of energy and the many places where we exploit energy that have proven to be unhealthful as well as our social spaces. And so many of the panels address social spaces throughout history of conflict, social places of discrimination, of difficulties that we need to proclaim, lift up, spaces of gender. And what I think those of us who have really devoted our lives to the both the encounter and the immersion of Asian thought and practice is that wherever we go, there we are. And by inviting people, as did the Buddha, to look carefully at the stuff of the earth, of water, of fire, of air, and the structures of space, that we're given a task, we're given this tremendous responsibility to do what we can to make it better, as did Gandhi, as did Booker T. Washington, as have so many of the thought leaders and the innovators throughout history. And we cannot, in the current global state, afford not to look at the wisdom of India. And I'm currently teaching a book called Ministry for the Future. Kim Stanley Robinson, a renowned science fiction writer who says, where are we gonna get the ideas that'll get us out of our current problem? And he says, it's gonna be India. And he lifts up what we've been talking about earlier, this delicate, in-between place between disorder and order and says, as does the Isha Upanishad, that sometimes it's from the depths, actually every time we arrive at a solution to a difficult problem, where does it come from? It emerges from the depths of shadow. 
that we have to face that darkness. In that darkness, seek understanding. Out of that darkness, overcome our fear and do something that will be of service, do something that will be ultimately sustainable, but even more than sustainable, will allow full life flourishing, not just human life, but allow life to flourish in all its forms. But thank you, Stefan, for lifting up the book, because, yeah, that's why I wrote it. And hopefully it's making some connections here and there. Yeah, I, 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 I would like to recommend it for anybody who's interested in this topic. It's a really wonderful read. Very, very rich. So thank you. Um, can I jump in with a question about um, a theme that we that Stefan and I kind of have been really um, developing over the course of this podcast but the idea of the scholar practitioner, which both of you are are absolutely the best examples of and inspirations um, for me and, uh, and many others. And I just think that in terms of thinking like um, Chris, you mentioned sadhana and really bringing sadhana into relationship with research is, is you know, one of the, the one of the goals, I guess, uh, one of the goals of CIS for sure. And and this type of a scholar practitioner approach and. I guess, um, how is it that we can kind of um, look at knowledge, like the production of knowledge um, and the, our creative engagement with it as it transforms us um, through engaging with it? And so that kind of tends to um, go against like looking at history or tradition as something static or essentializing it and saying this is what it is, but really it's our creative engagement with it and how that creates new futures. Um, and I just would love to, to, to ask you both your, your experiences um, and how you approach this. Well, uh, maybe, maybe I, can, I can start. I, you know, I think uh, if you think about the conference, uh, there's a number of speakers, panels that go in this direction, <clears throat> but it's because the conference as a South Asian conference in itself um, is open and allows all kinds of voices and methodologies. So you'll see a mix over there. And uh, what you're talking about is a really important issue. Um, we have some theoretical um, talks, panels, and there's a room, I think, uh, in the future I think we definitely ought to have a consideration of what you're talking about, Jonathan, methodologies that are appropriate to the scholar practitioner, you know? And, you know, you're quite right about many of the scholars in these areas, particularly those delving in things like um, South Asian philosophies or, um, religious studies are scholar practitioners. Um, and traditionally, as you know, in most of the traditional schools, the idea is that whatever you are, you have to stay out of your scholarship. You, know, you, you need to distance yourself as a voice from the scholarship. It has to be about somebody else out there that you're studying. 
uh, you know, that you're looking at through a window, but not yourself are not uh, validating the ontological reality of what it is that you're studying. And I think that's exactly where um, many of us, um, you know, really feel that we are being compromised. And so the new methodologies that uh, I, I'm very happy about CIIS from the very beginning um, has tried to keep this particular approach open and uh, has kept up and innovated with the times in terms of academic discourse. And, uh, you know, how do I bring my own experience into the academic discourse and not let it either be, become narcissistic and in some sense, uh, you know, lost in various kinds of, uh, you know, limited uh, terminology that belongs to specific sectarian, uh, you know, boxes, um, but, uh, you know, does not lose its universal appeal either. Okay. So methodologies like autoethnography, organic inquiry, intuitive inquiry, heuristic inquiry, these kinds of methodologies um, are followed by a number of people in CIIS. We, we encourage it, particularly in the East-West Psychology Department and the Asian Contemplative and Transcultural Studies uh, concentration. And, um, you know, we practice it as scholars as well. And this is what you'll find in Chris's work. Uh, you'll find it in my work. Uh, I'm, I'm sure Chris has um, set up the yoga studies program at LMU. And um, we're partly the beneficiaries of that because many students come to us, several students have come to us uh, out of that program. Uh, and uh, we find that those students are all serious scholar practitioners. They they're, they got into that program because they were uh, yoga practitioners who wanted a voice, who wanted to talk about uh, what it meant and how it's different, not just another commodity, uh, you know, in the world market uh, that now has a box called New Age uh, commodities. Yeah, I'd like to speak to this from the higher ed perspective that everyone's looking for high impact, engaged learning, service learning, community service. And what I've really landed on is that the computer has set us free, that anybody who wants information just you know, pushes a few buttons, information, we've got it. What we really need as educators is to school people in formation, in being human, being fully human. And as I look at David Shish's work and at, um, you know, Jonathan's work, you know, performance, community building, for many years, 
Debashish ran a community East-West Foundation Center that did it all, that did concerts, that did lectures, not for an exclusive group of people that are paying a lot of tuition, but for people to just simply be in a place with one another. And when we're looking to the needs of you know, young people today, they really want that connection. They really want to be able to put the, the mind and the body together to rediscover this thing that in some times in history has been called soul. And they need it because without it um, being driven just by material pursuits or by ego pursuits, there's just a great sadness that wells up. And as we know, the levels of anxiety and sadness are high. And it's through these body-mind connection experiences that are facilitated not only in um, new age venues, but in places of you know, thoughtful educational formation through all disciplines that we're able to put a little bit of order back into the world that recognizes the roots of our disorder. So thank you, Jonathan, for bringing up the scholar practitioner thing, because, you know, without practice, um, no one gets anything. Thank you, Chris. That, that was really eloquent and uh, yeah, re really speaks to what's at the center of our uh, kind of concerns and interests. And think of, think of all of the thousands of people trained at CIIS who are doing remarkable work in school districts, in private practice, in all walks of life. It's just been such a profound contribution, not only to the Bay Area, but to the world. Yeah, I find in the, in the classroom with students, it's an interesting experience to um, watch them try to thread the needle between uh, their scholarship and their personal practice. There's a, a Western scholar uh, who's uh, um, a chair. He has a chair in Western esotericism in a university in Amsterdam. I think his name is Wouter Hanegraaff, that always recommends um, what he calls methodological agnosticism. So that's, and I, when I talk to my students, I say that it's really essential in a way that, I mean, you have your practice, you have your belief, you have your direct experience, but you still have to be able to take a step back from that. Realize that there will be people, there will be, there will be criticisms, there will be challenges. And that uh, the, it was something that actually the mother said, uh, that uh, the mother of the Sri Aurobindo Ashram, Mira Alfasa, uh, once said that we need to be able to actually hold to really see clearly and hold as uh, as a belief or an understanding, the exact opposite to what we actually feel that we believe. Otherwise, we won't be able to approach the truth. That's a, a true. What's a truly integral perspective on this? So I think that there's there's always a challenge. It's a personal challenge for me as well. That if my direct experience tells me something, to constantly dig deeper and say, okay you know, uh, here's, here is the experience, but 
what are the filters that I'm working with? And is it, a, is it a pure experience? Am I seeing clearly? And to constantly challenge ourselves because that helps deepen our practice. And that also pulls us into the realm of knowledge where we have to find information. We have to seek teachers that have walked, that have tread the path before us and find uh, people that we can trust in a lineage that we can trust. So this is a, is a challenge, I think, in the classroom. Otherwise, as you were alluding to, Chris, if students come in and they say, well, you know, I meditate every day, but there's absolutely no foundation to that. There's no study that's going along with that. It kind of runs in circles, where the, the potential is there for it to run in circles. And knowledge without practice um, is can be more and more abstracted from reality, from our actual embodied experience of, of life. Well said. I think that we've reached a good place to end. Thank you so much for uh, being with us, Debashish and Chris. And uh, we hope to, uh, we will we'll be seeing you. Uh, I'll be seeing you uh, in San Francisco. And we hope all uh, some of our listeners can come out as well, either to the in person or to uh, the online. I will be posting in the episode description uh, links to how you can register. Right. And, and save the dates. That's the first through the third of March. Which is the first through fourth in India, if you have India listeners. Yes, perfect. Thank you. Right, thank you. Thanks for a wonderful conversation. Yeah, thank you.